That was Beth Dobbin. I am Curtis Mansfield, and this is the Hips and Dips podcast. This week, I am joined by Team GB sprinter Beth Dobbin. I'm excited for this interview for a whole multitude of reasons. Firstly, her story is fascinating, overcoming some quite incredible medical adversity to achieve so much in her sport. Secondly, she's a Scottish record holder with a really exciting career ahead of her. But perhaps most importantly, she possesses the one thing I longed for my whole young life, speed. Well, that and being taller, better looking, uh, more intellectual, uh, having the ability to chat to women without my voice increasing by octave each time, and more money. But above all else, speed was the one thing I really craved for. Beth Dobbin covered the distance of 200 metres in 22.5 seconds, earning her that Scottish record. I'll compare that to my personal best, but I'm not sure it can measure in seconds, rather lunar cycles. Uh, representing Edinburgh AC and Loughborough as well as GB, she's amassed some quite impressive results ahead of this summer's Olympic Games. British champion in 2018 for 200 metres, third at the 2018 London World Cup, and seventh at the European Championships later that year. Then, a year later, she graced the world stage with a 19-place finish at the Doha World Championships. I think this quote sums Beth up perfectly. I knew I was not the most talented athlete in the group, but the one thing I did have was a hunger and a drive to be the best version of myself that I could possibly be. At the end of this episode, remember to go and check out the Instagram page, which is at hips underscore and underscore dips with a Z for details on Beth and all of my previous guests, and maybe even learn a thing or two from some really great content from some physios and trainers, as well as some really top athletes. Now, without further ado, it's time to hand over to the fastest woman in Scotland. It's Beth Dobbin. Right, really excited for today's guest in Beth. So Beth, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, I'm plodding uh, on as usual. <laughs> it's um, it's really exciting to have um, a guest who's on that sort of start of that Olympic journey, or at least the start of that Olympic year, um, obviously a year later than you probably planned. And I've had a number of guests in recent weeks who've had that similar they say sort of upward trajectory, which is really nice because yeah. if, if we had a chat in six months time or a year time, I'm sure you gave really different answers. So it's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, but to start with, we always start with a pretty standard question, which is how has the last 12 months been for you and your health? And as always, I'm interested from a physical, mental and social perspective. Yeah, it's actually been quite horrible, really. Um, obviously, it's been a pandemic so everyone's going through um different things and I'm very aware that you know there's been a huge amount of lives lost in this country and around the world so when kind of you start feeling sad about you know athletics and and competitions being postponed you do feel almost a bit silly but then at the same time when it's your world and and stuff that something you've worked towards from a really really young age it, it is really hard to take so yeah I don't I, I'm just cracking on with it and I'm I am getting on with it but it has been it has been a difficult uh, 12 months because things have happened that you just can't even believe it's happened and and ultimately the Olympics 
um, being cancelled is still something that I can't believe it's happened to this day because training was going so well, like leading up to it. And then you, you're always battling with those emotions. You know, God, I wish it had just gone ahead and things like that. And I know that when it doesn't go ahead, when it goes ahead this year, I will feel better that, you know, it's it's gone ahead and and it's happened. Um, but yeah, it has been a real tough kind of anxious year, really. Yeah, and it's that's, that's interesting as well because you're you're an athlete who competes in sprinting, which generally means you haven't got the longest career. Um, I think on yeah. average, I'm not sure what the exact number is, but I'm thinking sort of early to mid 30s would be the sort of the end of a sprinter's career, yeah. and that means a year for you as a percentage is a much bigger loss from your career. Yeah. So if I look at say my life or my career, um, I'm thinking you know a year's perhaps lost. Um, time on that career path is say mm-hmm. you know five percent or I'm, I'm not getting the math to say it's five percent but for you you're talking like maybe ten percent or twelve percent mm-hmm. or whatever it is so for you that year must be really devastating to lose out on that yeah I do feel like as athletes we have been robbed of a year of an already short career exactly like you said um you don't get much time doing this um and yeah that's just been taken away from us and in particular I feel for those athletes that were kind of at the top of the game and they were the favourites going into the Olympics because they, like, if if the Olympics happened every every year, there would be a different Olympic champion, most likely in most events. I think maybe 80% of events, they would have a different Olympic champion. So it's like uh, maybe 80% of the people that were going to be an Olympic champion in 2020, where that won't happen for them in 2021. So it does feel really really awful and then also there's athletes that they were planning to retire um after 2020 they're in a position where do they go on for an extra year you know the body might be hanging on by a thread with all the injury issues they might not physically be able to do it um so yeah it's it is really tricky for athletes I, I do really feel robbed and and you know I haven't been able to enjoy because we, we trained from like October to March. That's your kind of winter training block. And we did all those awful, awful, really, really tough sessions. And then it was a case of kind of for what, you know, there was no competitions to kind of show what, what you did and what you worked for. Yeah. And that's an interesting point as well about people retiring. Cause I, I can't remember who I was chatting to. And I think it was like a friend of a friend, but they were saying that they already had plans for their retirement. Like they'd already accepted a job, say, such in like amateur events. So they accepted a job in like banking or they'd mm-hmm. they decided to go into punditry, whatever it was, and they'd signed contracts. And then suddenly it was like, oh, well, actually, I, I've got to tunnel that down. Or they were planning to have a family or whatever it was. Yeah. And it's a really interesting. You kind of forget. I always think about those at the start of their career, but at the end of their careers, yeah, just as. Um, just as important but can you can you see positives for yourself in having the extra year of training almost like a double winter block I suppose in many ways I can but at the same time I don't feel like it really works like that because I think you you would never just sit out of a year to to get stronger for an extra year if you did athletes would um, do that two years prior to the Olympics if that was the best for you so I feel like a lot of athletes I think are trying to stay positive and saying stuff like that but I, de- I don't actually deep down agree with it because I think yeah that's that's not what 
makes not what makes you a good athlete obviously you need to train but nothing replicates the competition and nothing is the same as you know running how you would run in a competition and you reach speeds that you just wouldn't reach in training so I do feel like yeah that has I, I I'm trying to see positives but I, I just can't see that as a positive I think you you know you've got time to kind of have a bit of downtime and work on different things um and that can that can be a positive but i i still just think yeah it, it's such a shame that we've all missed um a year of our career sorry i'm not sounding very optimistic at all but yeah that is just my honest outlook on it i don't feel you know happy to have an extra year maybe if my training hadn't gone so well and I'd had I'd been injured I would be kind of grateful for the extra time but my training had gone well and I didn't want any extra time I felt ready to go um so yeah I'm probably in a different because athletes get injured really really often um there'll probably be a, ha a lot of athletes out there that did get injured on the lead up to Tokyo 2020 um and so we won't be that disappointed they feel like they've got an extra chance whereas I just wasn't in that category mm. well yeah I mean that's uh honestly it's the best policy so I'm glad <laughs> we started on that on that uh, on that note um but yeah no, I, I think I agree and I think it's true that there's gonna be a lot of athletes who are going to win medals like you said who wouldn't off and they'll be ecstatic this extra year There'll be players or athletes who've got injuries who suddenly now get a second chance at that Olympics, so like the first or the final Olympics. And there'll be athletes who probably would have won a medal last year and this year are going to have leg breaks or joint injuries. So it is going to be a very interesting year. I mean, I, I, another, I mean, another guest we had on a few weeks ago, he's a professional boxer, or he's going to be. He's currently in the team. You might have heard of him, Fraser Clark. He's a Team GB boxer, mm. a team heavyweight. And obviously he's planning to turn professional post-Olympics. So that whole yeah. professional contract, everything can push back a year. Um, in his case, because he's a lot older, maybe that's a year, well, it's a year less in his professional career. It's a year less of potentially winning, you know, world titles or British titles, whatever it is. So it will be interesting. I suppose you won't really see it until all the dust settles in, yeah. in you know, a year's time, five years' time, 10 years' time. Then you can really reflect mm -hmm. on how this has all gone. Um but let's take a slight sidestep. Um, so we always start these episodes, well, more recent weeks anyway, with this little light-hearted quiz. It's a great chance for us to um, to break the ice, so to speak. And it's also a chance for me to show off my ability to write poor puns. Um, <laughs> this week I struggled with. So it's always something to do with my guest. Um, and I had, uh, I sort of had, sort of dob in dob out that seems like a bit of a, a bit of a cop out really um i tried to go with something to do with 200 meter sprinter and i was thinking like 200 meter splinter which was uh which was terrible i agree and uh, i don't i didn't have a game for that something to do with bits of fragments of wood so that wasn't really going anywhere but in the end i've sort of decided to go look into your family tree so obviously you come from a a line of successful sportsmen or at least your father was with um his career in professional football. Um, so we have gone with a game which I am calling Whose Bloodline Is It Anyway? <laughs> uh, and what I have done is I have selected 10 families where the parents and the child are both successful in the same sports. Um, and I'm going to give you the names of both the parent and the child. And I want you to tell me which sport they're successful in. 
okay <laughs> <laughs> so it's um there's a few in here which if you get them wrong you'll you'll be ashamed amongst your family oh, and friends God, so. here i am gonna disgrace myself <laughs> be, be careful okay so first up we have uh steve bruce and his son alex bruce oh my god i'm not getting off to a good start are they both from the same sport or these are all from the same sport yeah yeah um i'm gonna guess cycling but i don't know <laughs> no that was uh they were football um oh no my dad's gonna kill me <laughs> steve bruce won three premier league titles in man united and he's currently the manager of newcastle Oh, and uh, his son, Alex Bruce, played for Hull FC, as well as uh, Northern Ireland and Ipswich. Uh, so next up, uh, we have... Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I should have my research here. I thought this was pronounced Liz McLaughlin, but I actually think it's pronounced McColgan. So it's Liz McColgan and Eilish McColgan. They are athletics. I know that one. <laughs> They are athletics, UK <laughs> and Scottish, uh, like yourself. Um, of course, Liz won the 1988 Olympic silver medal and was a former world champion in 10,000 metres. And uh, Eilish has also competed, I think, in two Olympics now. Um, yeah. I believe it's on both yeah, middle distance runners. Yeah. Yeah, I, I assume she's planning to run this year as well. Yeah, yeah, she's still going for sure. Great. So uh, that that was the easiest one on here, I think, for you. Oh, God. It's going to go downhill from here. Yeah. <laughs> Next up, we have uh, Cecil Exum and Dante Exum. This is a hard one. <laughs> I'm going to guess boxing, but I really don't know. No, so this was a hard one. They're both basketball players. Oh. Um, uh, Dante plays for the Utah Jazz in America. And he's an American international and his father played for Australia. Uh, next up, we have Nigel Mansell and his son, Leo Mansell. Right, I'm going to guess football for that one. Football, no, that was a oh, motorsport. No. Uh, oh. Nigel Mansell is a Formula, Formula One driver from Great Britain. Um, oh, I'm going to give... He's going to have his head in his hands. Uh, potentially, yeah, but that's not for me to say. Right, next up, uh, we're going over to America. That's a big clue um, in the US. So we have Archie Manning and his two mm -hmm. sons, Peyton Manning and Eli Manning. Uh, I'm going to go for the NFL. Correct. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Yes. Uh, both uh, successful in the NFL. Um, I think Peyton Manning um, has won multiple Super Bowls, and I'm not sure which one of them holds the record. I think for the most passing yards, or he formerly held it. But either way, both very successful American football players. Next up, back here in the UK, we have Chris Broad and Stuart Broad. Okay, I'm going to guess rugby. Close. It was cricket. <laughs> Oh um, God! Uh, both both England internationals for cricket. I mean, you're allowed that though, because seeing as you're Scottish, you're allowed to um <laughs> not get cricket right. I think mean, that's yeah. that's a written rule. I'll take that. Uh, now over to uh, South Africa, where we have uh, Jesse Pina and Rowan Pina. Um, 
Okay, rugby. That is rugby. Good guess. Yeah. Uh, Rowan Pina. Uh, so they're both uh, former Springboks, but Rowan Pina played also in Northern Ireland with Ulster. Uh, so last couple now, we have Frank Lampard Sr. and the surprisingly named Frank Lampard Jr. Football. Football, correct. God, uh, God, God, that's in tune that I got that right. Yeah. And then uh, the last couple are both Americans. So we got Bobby Bonds and Barry Bonds. American football. Before you answer, <laughs> I'll tell you now, it's not, they're American, but it's not American football or basketball. It's another American sport. Uh, the NFL again? <laughs> no, they are uh, baseball players. Oh. And, <laughs> and finally, we have uh, the late, great Muhammad Ali and his daughter, uh, Layla Ali. Boxing. Boxing, correct. <laughs> uh, I forgot to count once again, which is also a theme of the show. But I think you got yeah. about five. We'll go with five. Yeah, I'll take that. I think, oh, I think that's not bad. Not bad going. They weren't easy then, for sure. Okay, so that's the end of our little quiz. And now let's move on to the bulk of the interview. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's interesting actually so this podcast is all about adversity and injuries and overcoming which and normally that is a physical injury um, which the athlete has had on the pitch but in your case actually it's more of a medical issue so uh, how about you just rewind the clocks and tell us a little bit about what went wrong and how you overcame it yeah so I was um, at secondary school at the time I think I was in maybe year eight year nine um so I would have been around 13 and it completely, well, it, it did pretty much come out the blue. I had the day before I had some kind of odd twitching sensations and the, in the morning again, I was trying to put my makeup on before school and I couldn't do it because my hand was like curling in. So I couldn't hold my mascara and my head was like tilting back, but I really didn't think anything of it at all. And then I was at school, it was break time um, and all of a sudden I just had this huge um, seizure, which obviously I'd never had before. Um, so I didn't have a clue what was going on. I honestly thought I was going to die. Um, and all I remember was just felt like my eye was rolling back a bit. My hand was moving uncontrollably and my neck was like really jerking. Um, and I just remember um, seeing my friend's face and she's kind of trying to hold me up. And she just looked absolutely terrified. And I can still picture her face to this day. And I think seeing that her reaction was what made me think, oh, I'm, that is it, I'm going to die. And I just remember trying to stay awake, trying to stay awake. And then in the end, I was like, oh, I can't even fight this. You know what? Just just let it be. Yeah. Um, and then I kind of fell unconscious um, and I think I was out for about 10 to 15 minutes um, and I came around feeling so rough. Um, so, yeah, just awful. Um, wasn't, couldn't really talk, couldn't move. People were talking at me and I, I just felt so confused. Um, and when I got to the hospital, it, 
the seizure was that serious they thought it was a stroke because I couldn't move the left side of my body I couldn't speak um uh, my dad was there he came to the hospital and they were asking me whether I recognized him and I recognized him but I couldn't say he was my dad and it was just really really confusing and and I just felt so confused um and yeah I was diagnosed with epilepsy due to how serious the seizure was Wow. And then they, they obviously started you on medication. So mm-hmm. what was that like? So firstly, what were you put on and then what was the return to training like? Yeah. So I was put on Tegretol, um, which was good. It, it worked instantly. I never had a seizure like that again. Um, but it did come with a lot of side effects. So I um, was really lethargic uh, they say it affects your balance I didn't notice that all the time uh, but I did notice it and I ju- yeah I just felt really tired no energy but then on the other hand I did feel really grateful that that I wasn't having seizures like that again because I was in hospital for I think four or five days um, really confused for a, a good couple of days after um, really frustrated because I was trying to say things and I couldn't say them um, and just felt really, really upset. So, and I remember the doctor saying, you know, there's loads of different types of epilepsy and loads of different types of medication, and it could be trial and error to find one that worked. So I just felt really grateful that this medication had worked and it had stopped the seizures. Um, And then in terms of getting back training, my coach at the time, John, he was really, really good. He just said, no, take, take your absolute time. Um, don't don't come back for a, a good while so I think I had around three months off um because it happened early October and I had October November December off and then in January I started back again but I just noticed huge differences in terms of like energy at training and just I just wasn't running quick like I was be- oh as quick as I was before um mm. Yeah, I just noticed that, and I, at the time, I thought it was the seizure, um, but actually my mum pointed out, after this had been going on, like, a couple of years, my mum pointed out, do you know what, it's probably the medication, um, and especially because I just always felt so tired on it, I, and, and then when I came off my medication and, and started running well, I realised that my mum was right. Yeah, and... I mean, I'm quite excited right now because this is a rare opportunity for me to demonstrate my actual thing, which I wasted four years studying for at university <laughs> and the first three years of my career, which is as a clinical pharmacist. I can finally talk about medication. <laughs> all that money was well spent and I'm sat here. I've got my guide to all oh, yes. on, on the desk. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, you talk about those sort of common side effects and Tegretol mm-hmm. is the, well, a brand name for carbamazepine and... Mm-hmm like just the, the really common so these are side, these are really common side effects dizziness drowsiness dry mouth fatigue fluid imbalance gastrointestinal discomfort headaches hyponatremia which is like low sodium so all the things which well, actually <laughs> that list of side effects pretty much describes the end of a race i imagine for most people yeah. Uh, yeah. you're really tired your sodium levels are low you've got really poor fluid balance um uh, vision disorders vomiting weight increase those obviously 
that's not the end of the mm-hmm. race so it's just general side effects mm-hmm. but <laughs> yeah but uh but yeah so it's, it's interesting that that's probably in many ways some of the worst effects you could have for medication for your sport and obviously those are what you had thrust upon you so what was it like I suppose emotionally and mentally having that clear let's call it almost a disability in terms of what the medication was doing to you it was setting you back in that way yeah it was really tough because I put a lot of effort into my athletics and I know everyone does but I was a really really I still am a really really hard worker and I just remember I remember even competitions like crying to my mum when I'd uh, there was a competition called English schools and um, I just kept missing out on the standards um, year after year. And I just remember one year, I just sat on my mum's knee in public at the track being like 15 or 16. So like, that's not cool to do that. At that age. <laughs> and I just remember crying my eyes out, just like, this just feels so, so unfair. Um, because I don't like, I think at the time I wasn't out, I knew what my mum was saying about the medication, but until you like, until I came off it, I didn't quite believe it. Um, so it was really tough because I was putting all this training in and I was just, when I was racing and I was just rubbish. It, I just, and before I, I was actually winning my races and, and doing quite well. And then when I was on my medication, I was just, I was just rubbish. I was doing rubbish and it was tough. Um, but then I came, when I came off my medication, obviously it came with like a lot of worry and anxiety that kind of that safety blanket had been taken away from me. But when my time started to come down and just to put it into perspective, so the English schools that I tried to qualify for every year, I couldn't qualify for when I was on my medication. And then the year I came off, I went there and won a silver medal. So I'd kind of gone from not even being able to qualify, which would put me in the top 32 or whatever in the country to then go in and becoming the second quickest girl my age in the country. That just shows how much it was kind of debilitating me and, and mm. stopping me from succeeding. Um, and, and I'm so put off medication uh, as well. Like uh, uh, if I ever have to take anything, unless it's paracetamol, I'm like, no, I'm, I'm fine. Because going through something like that, I, I, I can see how it affected my performance and it, and it really just put you off for not life. Cause I'm not that old, but so far I'm still put off. Um, like, especially like with British athletics um, we've discussed about kind of managing your periods around your competitions. And that involves taking medication to stop your periods. Well, for me, that is never going to happen. I'd rather have the hin- like my perf- performance be slightly hindered by my, period than take a risk um, and take medication to Mm. stop it because I just don't know what that medication is going to do to me it has completely put me off for life and that I just I will barely touch anything yeah no I'm very similar when it comes to medication I really try and avoid it wherever possible which is quite a strange position to be in as a pharmacist because (laughs) I know what the medication does but I'd rather not use any of it but mm-hmm. obviously in, in your case it was very important you did use it and you can't underestimate the importance yeah. of that but whose decision was it to come off were you were you really pressurizing the doctors or was it just time to come off how did that happen not at all because even though my athletics wasn't doing well I don't think I wanted to come off because I felt safe on it and and like you said even though it it creates all these side effects and and not nice things I 
I still wanted to be on it because coming off it, I thought, am I going to then have another seizure how I did have? Um, so I actually wanted to stay on it. But my um, neurologist, he said, you know, you've not had a serious seizure in however many years. You, you fit the criteria to come off it. Um, and we did, we lowered the dose really, really gradually. Um, and yeah, I, I came off it and thankfully have been healthy ever since. Um, and looking back, it is the best thing I've ever done coming off it. Um, if I was still on it now, I wouldn't even be doing athletics, I don't think, because I wasn't going to continue running 26 seconds as an adult. Um, yeah. That's fine when you're a youngster and doing it for fun. But athletics, it involves com committing a lot of your life. And, and unless you're running quick, quick times, you don't really want to be doing that. So, yeah, I think coming off my medication um, was the best thing I could have done. Yeah, and epilepsy is a really strange condition because it falls into that camp of a really well-known name, but mm. a very poorly understood disease. So mm. I'm trying to think of other examples, but the word is well known. The word the word falls into a normal dialogue. Like you know, if there's yeah. a if there's a light that's a bit flickery, people say, "Oh, I hope you're not epileptic." Yeah. Or, do you know what I mean, or like something yeah. like that, or um having a seizure and people mm -hmm. like it's almost like it's, it's quite colloquial it's used in yeah. form and popular culture yeah but it's a very poorly understood disease and it's also very poorly understood to the extent it can be debilitating yeah you've already mentioned having the fatigue and the tiredness and, and how that affected your your running career but obviously mm -hmm. there's rules around whether you can drive or not which probably didn't affect yeah. you when you first had your seizure, but um, mm -hmm. I probably should know this. This is definitely part of my degree, but there are so many um, years you have to have to be seizure-free yeah. before you can drive. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And let's just say, for example, you weren't um, uh, you weren't a sprinter, but let's say you want mm -hmm. to go into the army or yeah. drive lorries or be a pilot. Um, there's mm -hmm. various rules around that as well. So it's, it's, it can affect yeah. large proportions of your life. Um, mm -hmm. But obviously, it's fantastic you're now off the medication, and that doesn't mean obviously you're you're cured, but it means you've been well managed, which is great. Mm -hmm. And um, hopefully, that leaves the door open for you to have a lot of success this year. And mm -hmm. I suppose on that note, while we're here, what what sort of really are your plans for 2021? Um, for me, I I want to just get back racing as soon as as possible, and then the Olympics is obviously the big goal. We got it taken away from us in 2020 um so yeah I just really want to to go out in 2021 and have a really good season I always kind of my my main goal is to always run faster than I have done that the year previous but obviously in this case it'll be two years previous because of the pandemic um that's kind of what motivates me because I and I find it um much better to motivate myself to compare myself to myself so what did I do last year how can I improve on that um and obviously the Olympics falls in with that and now kind of the level I'm at at the moment if I run PBs and you know have a good season that will put me in contention for the Olympics as well so yeah I'm quite yeah intrinsically motivated in terms of what I want to achieve is being like the best athlete I can be um, and what everyone else is doing. It, it never really worries me or bothers me. I always just want to improve on myself. Yeah. And we're entering into quite a golden age of British sprinting, both on the men's mm -hmm. and the women. Actually the men's 
had their well, they, they already are they still are in a peak but they had their peak a little bit earlier but the women now mm-hmm. are really coming into their own which mm-hmm. I imagine means there's a lot of competition for relay places in particular mm-hmm. um, which has always been a great chance for especially British athletes to win medals at the Olympics so mm-hmm. as a British team um, a are you involved in the relay and b are you targeting um, a particular place are you are you, are you just going to pick up numbers or have you got particular targets yeah definitely so um after my kind of breakthrough year in 2018 um I got put on funding for British Athletics for for the relay um, but I'm the four by four relay so um as a 200 meter runner you kind of have to step down to the four by one or step up to the four by four and because the way um, I run the two it's very much I'm strong at the end of the race and um, I'm definitely more of a two 400 meter runner so um, I've not actually been part of the 400 meter relay yet um, but I'm definitely hoping to be at European indoors uh, we've got the trials for that in a couple of weeks time but yeah like you said it's a really good way to get medals at championships because a lot of the time GB do really well in the relays yeah. um, so that's definitely something I want to um, be part of uh, next year definitely and there's there's quite a few relay opportunities so like I said there's the European indoors and then outdoors we've got the um, world relays which are in Poland and then we've got the European team championships and we take a relay team to there so um, that will be good to, for me to get some experience to do those competitions to give me confidence to to run in the relay because it can be or not more nerve-wracking but it's definitely very nerve-wracking because you're not just doing it for yourself like you do everything in athletics for yourself whereas the relay you've got three other girls that are depending on you so it is quite nerve-wracking so I think getting experience at those smaller competitions will help me at, in the Olympics. Yeah yeah <laughs> Uh, the four by four hundred meter relays, one of my probably one of my favourite events of the Olympics. It's always mm. right at the very end, isn't it? On the last event yeah. of the of the athletic spell, it's a little bit of more of a party atmosphere towards the end. <laughs> yeah. and, and also, the four by four hundred meter is an event is just absolute carnage. Um, yeah. No one, no one's got a lane. Everyone's like, there's elbows everywhere. Yeah. One minute GB's on the inside, then you're on the outside. Yeah. Um. Uh. I remember one of the alumni from my school was Martin Rooney. Oh, no way. Had a, <laughs> I met him, I met him twice. There's, I've got a great photo somewhere of me and him. I think we, we London Youth Games and we won this mm-hmm. um, a team of the year trophy and he presented it to us and I've, I've still oh. got it. I remember I'm wearing a short sleeve white school shirt um, with a pocket on it course uh, <laughs> and for some reason like a multicolored scarf around my neck oh like, no <laughs> I don't know like like a wannabe Doctor Who style it yeah was, uh, it was very poor and he's there in his GB <laughs> tracksuit but, but yeah, yeah so over the years I've watched that a lot particularly because of him and mm-hmm. it is a fantastic event and it's one Britain has done really well and so if you can get yeah. in the mix then yeah, I think definitely. you've uh, got a great chance um but i said obviously 200 meters is your main focus and mm-hmm. you've alluded to you want to get faster and faster um i think in was it was it doha i think you said you got 19th yes in the yeah. semi-final so that's probably uh that, obviously that was an interesting championship so that was the one with like mm-hmm. the crowds were half empty and stuff but was that your yeah. first was that your first real taste of like the very top of the sport yeah, it was. It, 2019 was um, quite a difficult year for me because 2018 had gone so well and I'd kind of burst onto the scene. 
and um, throughout my career I've never really struggled with injuries but then in 2019 I had um, a few injury setbacks uh, I still managed to make the team for Worlds but it kind of it wasn't really an enjoyable experience because I was carrying a bit of a niggle going into it and then I picked up a bit of a niggle out there and it was just it just was like not a good year um, and I just don't feel like I fully enjoyed my um, experience at my first world championships just because I went in there feeling un unprepared um, because I'd missed training and and like I said picked up a niggle during the season that kind of got better and then I went to Worlds and picked up a different niggle and so it was just I feel like because my body had gone quicker than it had ever gone before the previous year 2019 just seemed to it just I've, I've not been injury prone at all but in 2019 there just seemed to be something new every day that's how it felt I'd wake up in the morning and think why does that hurt um so yeah it was 2019 is a bit even though I managed to run a PB I qualified for world championships it's good looking back on it now because I think how did I manage that when I missed so much training um but yeah 20 Doha I don't really have fond memories because yeah I just didn't perform how I wanted to and I don't think necessarily I, I beat myself up at the time but but actually I just missed so much training I was never going to be in great shape so yeah it was it was disappointing um, and I think that's why I was even more disappointed when the Olympics got cancelled because you know I'd felt disappointed about Worlds and I didn't feel like I had the chance to kind of showcase a good season I want I wanted to prove to myself and kind of everyone else that you know I can have a, another good season um but obviously that's that's moved to this year now yeah and I saw this great quote from you actually um in an article you were featured in which was I knew I wasn't the most talented athlete in the group but one thing I knew was I had a hunger and a drive to be the best version of myself that I could possibly be now that of course is inspirational and uh, sort of highlights a great work ethic but it also says to me as someone who struggled with injuries in the past often the people who work the hardest and have that hunger are the kind of people who push through injuries overtrain under rest and so on um, is that something that could perhaps be attributed to you as well um I don't know because up until, like I said, up until 2018, I've never really experienced any injuries. Um, and I'm quite lucky my coach is really good in terms of making sensible decisions. So I don't really make any of my own training decisions. My coach will, you know, decide what sessions I'm doing and things like that. And he's, he's con constantly in contact with my physios and my therapists and myself asking me, how, how am I feeling? How's my body how's everything going um so it that almost wouldn't be possible I'm definitely if say if you gave me sometimes on our program it will be eight to ten reps there's people in my group that would that they're doing eight if they see eight to ten and I'm the type of person I'm doing ten if I see eight to ten so there is yeah. little things like that but because he's so um much in communication with my physios like I said and myself that just doesn't really happen because if I'm feeling something I will either tell him or tell my physio so they're aware of what's going on because you can't fix something um, unless, you know, you tell the experts on it. And, it, and sprinting is very different. It's, it's, you can't run 
as fast as you possibly can without with uh, an injury in the background because you physically can't go that fast whereas I think it would be easier to do um, maybe as an endurance runner because you're running at um, like a, a lower intensity um, mm. whereas sprinting you you can't it's really hard to physically push through push through things I think yeah and I mean of course uh, as a sprinter your training is really high impact and mm-hmm. Uh, that would obviously make you susceptible, imagine, to lots of sort of muscle injuries and joint injuries. So what sort of injuries, obviously you've mentioned several times you had injuries, particularly up to Doha. What sort of injuries are we talking mm-hmm. about? What's the sort of common injuries for you and, and your teammates? Yeah, so I, in 2019, when I was having all these injury problems, the issue was no one knew what it was, what was going on. So I had a pain that felt like it was inside my knee. Um, and I was seeing the physios at British Athletics and no one knew what was going on. And I was getting really, really distressed because I'd never really missed any training. And at this point, I think I'd missed nine weeks of training um, over what nothing was showing up on the scans. No one knew what it was. Um, and then my coach was kind of like, right, enough's enough. We're going down to Oxford. You're going to see the physio I used to see. And I saw him and then that night I was able to train and he looked at my whole body and it was my right knee that was sore and it turned out it was coming from my left foot and that just really blew my mind because I was like, how can I have pain in my knee coming from my left foot? And what was happening was my left foot was so jammed that um, every time I like stepped on the ground, it like jolted my left hip, which then made my right hip go higher and it pulled on my right knee. So um, that was like mind blowing for me. But then because I'd missed, um, and then what happened from there is he would sort my foot out. It'd feel better for maybe three, four days and then it would go back. So all in all, until we'd got it rehabbed properly and, and fixed properly, all in all, I missed 15 weeks out of sprint spikes, which is, yeah, almost four months. It's really not ideal. And then because of that, we were trying to um, catch up on the training. We had, we had to fit it all in. And I think we were just, my, my volume went from 15 weeks of barely doing anything because I was injured to then, right, we've got to play catch up. And then I just picked up little niggle after little niggle. But it was, it was nothing major. It was nothing like, I've broke this, I've pulled that. It was nothing like that. It was just little aggravating things that not, no one really could give me answers for. Um, and anyway, uh, in 2020, things were going a lot better. I didn't have one single injury problem, touch words. And then um, we, the pandemic happened in March, we went into lockdown and I was doing a lot of my training um, in not in a, my usual environment. And uh, my coach didn't want me to do any speed sessions because I wasn't getting regular physio and that can be dangerous. And then it gets to June and we're back on the track. And my third, first speed session back on the track, I pulled my hamstring and I just couldn't believe it because I was 26 at the time. I'm still 26, but yeah, it's 26. <laughs> and you, 
you hear of sprinters and they call the ha- hamstring injury is such a common injury in sprinters. And all the sprinters I know have all pulled the hamstring at 18, 19, you know, they've rehabbed it. They've, they've prevented it from happening again because I'd never, ever, ever pulled a muscle. I honestly thought my muscles were made of something different and I'm never going to pull a muscle. Cause if you haven't pulled one by 26, you really think you're not gonna, um, so for me, that was really, really hard to take because I didn't know how, what to do or how to deal with it. Um, but fortunately, my physio, Gordon, he rehabbed it really well. Um, but it, I think for me, the, it was the confidence more than anything, because like I said, if I'd done it when I was 18, you know, when you're a bit fearless, I could come back from it straight away without worrying. Whereas it took me months to be, have the confidence to try and run fast like flat out again because every time I ran I was like my hamstring's gonna go my hamstring's gonna go so it is I think injuries are are like 10% physical 90% mental it's it's such a mental battle coming back after injuries yeah well of course it is and I mean there's a whole scope of this podcast is people coming back from injuries and it's something mm-hmm. I've had to come to terms with as well um I've, I've never anything like that. I have had a um, rec fem strain. Mm. This thing to a mm-hmm. sort of like a, it's like a sprinter's injury. It's probably quite a classic one. Yeah. So probably have. Um, not that I am a sprinter, as we'll come on to mm-hmm. later on. Um, so I think we're going to sort of park injuries there, which is good. Mm-hmm. And then I want to get on to looking at sort of training and mm-hmm. and I suppose sort of what the workload looks like for a British sprinter. And then we're going to go mm-hmm. on to some sort of interesting things about psychology and the mental side of it would be great um mm-hmm. just before we do though it's quite interesting obviously as mentioned your your dad um was a was a sportsman uh, mm-hmm. had a career in professional football playing with like celtic and barnsley and grimsby town and that of course is uh, jim dobbin mm-hmm. so what kind of influence did you have growing up in a in a sporting family Mm-hmm. Um, so my dad, I just remember him being like really active around the house. He was always doing like circuits almost in his room, press ups and things like that. And me and my dad started going for runs together when I was really young. I was still at primary school. Um, and I just remember just really enjoying it. It was like a nice way to spend my Sunday mornings. And I, I really fell in love with like the pushing myself and, and, I just I just really enjoyed it and then um I, from there I got into like the cross country side of athletics so I wasn't always a sprinter um and yeah just going for runs with my dad really helped me um just it taught just taught me hard work and just taught me pushing yourself in exercise which it isn't always easy to do and I think if I'd not learned that at such a young age I don't think I would have the work ethic that I do today because things are so much easier when you learn them when you're younger um, and it just really drilled that into me but even though my dad's from sporty background he never like pushed me or anything like that it was always me saying dad I want you to take me to the athletics club like pestering him to take me rather than them my mum or my dad um, putting too much pressure on me and they always supported me they always came to watch me race but um they weren't pushy you know if I said I don't want to do it that I mean they would have been disappointed but they that it would be my choice and like same when I was getting ready for races it was me saying to them 
come on, you're going to make me late. Like, we need to go. Uh, whereas a lot of other parents would be getting their kids up and saying, come on, you're going to be late. My parents weren't like that at all. And I think that then helps me now because my coach is sometimes uh, like on the back of some of my other training partners say you need to do this you need to do that whereas he never has to do it with me because I'm not doing this sport for anyone else it's too hard to do Mm. for anyone else I'm I'm only doing it for myself and um yeah I think that I've definitely got that from my parents um obviously he was a footballer but did he did he have a lot of speed as well is is a speed genetic or was that something you stumbled across well we I found out not that long ago. My mum told me that she was actually quite quick at school um, and okay. sports day, and my nana was on my mum's side. So all the all this time, everyone always thinks my like athletic ability comes from my dad, um, but actually, my mum said she thinks it comes from her because she was quick at school. I think she did the high jump or something like that as well. I can't actually remember. Um, but yeah, my mum and my nana were quite good at athletics at school but um, I'm not actually sure whether my dad was quick like I think I remember racing him uh, to the gates at the end of a few runs and I'm pretty sure I beat him a few times so probably not that quick I think he had more stamina than anything <laughs> okay um, yeah so it's such a shame actually with uh, with your parents there's never a time when you're both in your prime at the same time so like you're, <laughs> yeah. you're, on, you're on your way up and you're too young and then by the time you get to the age where you can beat them they always use the excuse they're too old. It's not fair. Yeah. Like, he's like 14. I like, beat my dad at like table tennis. He's like, oh, it's not fair. Yeah. If I was like 10 years <laughs> younger, I would have beaten you and stuff like that. So yeah. it's a shame. We couldn't, we can't face our parents. We're both in our yeah. prime selves. Um, Definitely. Internal argument. <laughs> okay. So, um, Beth, I have a little confession for you. Um, mm-hmm. I am very slow. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I wish it wasn't the case. I wish I had speed, um, but from a young age, it was very apparent I had no natural speed. Mm. Um, and to this day, I'm sure lots of my friends are listening and they will all agree on the hockey pitch. I am incredibly slow on the rugby pitch. <laughs> I'm incredibly slow. I'm the kind of guy who finds a little gap of space, runs through it, and then a few seconds later, mm. everyone's caught with me. Um, yeah. I haven't got any acceleration um in the swimming pool I was reasonably fast but that doesn't really have mm-hmm. much applications on the <laughs> land so so when we get on to these next subjects I wish I could offer great insight into my life <laughs> and my knowledge of speed but I've never have have no knowledge of moving at any sort of pace <laughs> unless I'm on a bike or a car so <laughs> unfortunately I can't really help with that but I am interested to know a lot more about what it takes to be a sprinter Mm-hmm. So firstly, kind of what does your training week look like on average? Mm-hmm. Um, so with sprinter, sprinting, obviously, it's a power event. So we do a lot of gym stuff. So um, we'll have three gym sessions a week and then maybe a circuit session as well. Um, so it's a lot of explosive lifts and um, building strength. So depending on the time of year, so kind of in the winter, we'll be doing a lot of heavy like squats, deadlifts, things like that. And then um, we do a lot of power cleans, like Olympic lifts to that, like a quick and snappy um, to help kind of your, your start of your race. And then in terms of running, um, we work on acceleration and, and speeds um, one day a week. So we'll, do, we'll work on 
um, the first 30 meters and, and as the year progresses then we'll, we'll work on pure speed which is like up to 60 meters um, we'll do a, a, a longer um, endurance session so that might be some 300s um, things like that to kind of build that aerobic capacity and then um, we'll do like a kind of mid between so that might be some 150s or 120s um, things like that to work on that speed endurance the zone in the middle um, but it all does depend on kind of the time of year so um, in the winter we'll be doing typically more volume and, and longer stuff but at a slower pace and then as we get closer to racing it's we, we might just do two running sessions a week but they're a lot better quality so yeah it is it's just about trying to cover cover all bases of your your race so you think of what event you want to do you need to have for the 200 meters you need to be strong at the end and you need to have good speed endurance and you need to be quick over the first 100 as well so it's just about building that um, and the gym kind of supplements all that yeah so, so on that note when it came to that lockdown did you manage to do a lot of just strength work and not bother with the running as much yeah the lockdown was tough so um my dad and brother helped me build equipment for for to make a kind of home gym so I had I had the gym side of things pretty easy um it's not the same because there's absolutely no atmosphere in your garage on your own it was it was actually really tough um and I wasn't lifting as heavy as I would do normally and then when we did get back in the gym I was lifting so much heavier than I was in my garage and it didn't make sense I was like what is it but I think it's the atmosphere and, and you know having people around you but in terms of the running side that was the bit I really struggled because my coach didn't want me to do anything too fast anyway because I wasn't getting physio and things like that so it was just I was doing a lot of longer kind of tempo plodding kind of sessions um, and then I think that was what caused me to when I did finally get back on the track have have this hamstring injury because I'd just been going at maybe 70 80 percent um speed wise and then when you try we we did ease into it to be fair we didn't straight the first session back run speed but it's still it's still um caught us out so yeah definitely a big learning curve there yeah and I suppose thinking about the track on top of my head obviously you always run clockwise I assume mm -hmm. um do 200 meters 200 meter runners develop a slight imbalance between their sort of right and left side of their bodies because obviously you're running most of your run you're putting probably I imagine slightly more stress through your right side of your body to try and keep you on that curve is that an issue mm -hmm. people develop yeah definitely when I I go and see my physio that's the first thing he'll say to me is oh have you been doing bend work um because you can just tell it's it's it is it isn't natural for your body to be running around a bend like that but it's uh, for me that's uh, why the gym and conditioning side of things is so important because that can help we do a lot of single leg stuff in the gym and that can help balance that out and also having a good medical team and, and physio team around you because you need to be you when you're running around the bends you kind of almost coming out of like you said imbalance and and your natural position so you go and I see my physio and he puts me puts me right um but yeah there's always differences between left and right but it's just trying to manage them as best as possible have you ever run the other way around do you ever go anti-clockwise <laughs> N not in like training or races but you do see some sprinters when they're warming up they'll just jog the other way 
um, around the clock around the track and I always think I get what you're trying to do because obviously we always run one way but I don't think jogging that way will like just a slow 600 meter job will make much of a difference compared to like we do thousands of run the other way in in our career um but yeah I think it's just your body kind of does it doesn't have to be perfect it can get used to being in balance if that's what's normal for you um because we've been doing that since a lot of us since being kids young kids so your body kind of gets used to that and when my physio sees me um he does say no that's normal for you because there's it's not it's not supposed to look perfect so yeah it's about just managing those imbalances yeah we um so I, I trained at the University of Bath um I'm mm. a graduate of University of Bath and we have a really nice running track I'm not sure if you have a computer mm. down there and I haven't oh no well, I'd, I'd highly recommend it if you want to go yeah and see a nice track <laughs> anyway it's next door to our hockey center so when we were playing hockey for our warm-ups we'd always run around the track and mm-hmm. every so often we would try and do like a fast lap the wrong way around <laughs> and it, yeah. you can't believe how hard it is mentally to run the wrong way around because your body so weird. hates it trying to run with yeah. all the strain for your left hand side it yeah. doesn't know what's going on it's, it's such a weird and trying to like stay in the lines you've got no coordination the other way yeah around. it's a massive me- i think they should do that at the olympics just every every so often <laughs> mix it up and say don't tell you before the race starts yeah this race turn the blocks the other way around you're going to run the opposite way i want to see what happens i think it'd be quite fun not for you guys not the, terrible for no you. as a spectator the, sport i think that'd be quite yeah quite or get one person to run the other way like like yeah. I'm cycling, get one person to go the other way. um <laughs> but i'll submit that to the olympic committee and see what they uh see what they say one thing that is actually really interesting and isn't a load of rubbish and it's Mm-hmm. interesting point is we i spoke of a boxing coach a few weeks ago and we spoke of what mm-hmm. it's like to have multiple fights in the same week so sort of peaking oh yeah times and that's obviously really applicable to you mm-hmm. so if you're going to go to the olympics well i mean you are but if when you go to the olympics if you're going to mm-hmm. have success you're going to have to compete in your heat semi-finals and final and then you're going to have to do um semi i think it's only Four by four hundred. I think you only have semi-finals and finals. Is that right? I don't think there's a heat as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this. Yeah, so that, right. in that case, mm-hmm. if you're going to get to both finals, you're going to have to run at least five races. Mm-hmm. So when yeah. you're training and when you're approaching competition, how do you make mm-hmm. your body peak five times in the space of you know ten days or whatever? Yeah, it's it's really difficult, and it's something that you have to train for, and it's something that I. And haven't mastered yet and then still training for but what we introduced um a few years ago is we do back-to-back running days so um our week is gym on a monday and then we run tuesday and wednesday and that back-to-back running days gets your body used to um like running one day and then coming back and doing it again so we've um introduced that um and what me and my coach have said we're, we're going to start doing this year as it gets closer to competition is obviously have my back-to-back running days on Tuesday and Wednesdays and then my next running day is not till Saturday but on certain weeks we couldn't do this every week because four um, running sessions would be a lot um, if you were doing it every week but just on occasional weeks we'll do um, you know, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday and then come back again and do Friday, Saturday just so you're getting used to it but when you go into competitions, it's a lot different to training because you go in 
um, a lot fresher. Um, so a lot of the load comes out. So that can help you cope with those back-to-back -back days or five runs in seven days. That can help you cope with that a lot better. Um, and like some athletes that double up, they'll do the 100, 200 and the relay. I really take my hat off to them because they must be so tired by the end of it. Um, but it's just through years as well of going to championships and getting that experience. Um, a lot of elite athletes have been doing this for maybe 10 years now, those at yeah. the end of their career, and they're used to every summer, uh, one week of the summer, they're going to be racing five times, in the, and they've built that up over a few years. So it, the more experienced you are, the easier that comes. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's always so sad when you see someone sort of get progressively slower throughout the competition mm -hmm. um you know have their their fastest time in the heats and then slightly slow yeah. in the final and they might make it through to the final but then they end up coming towards the end of the the, the pack yeah. and with a much slower time i remember a few years ago obviously not not to criticize him because he had a great competition but i think it was mm -hmm. adam jamili um who someone yeah. came across in the sprinting circle and yeah i think it's when he came fourth i'm trying to remember what was it the olympics or was it the world champs i'm not sure but obviously he was behind usain bolt and i think it was mm -hmm. de graf and several others so oh yeah in. i think that was rio yeah and he, I think he came in fourth and the time he ran in the semi-final i think probably would have got a medal and obviously there's various other mm -hmm. things involved in that there's the pressure and mm -hmm. um, you know the the all the mental side and the psychological side etc but it mm -hmm. always is a shame when you see athletes get steadily slower and it must be such a hard thing yeah. to manage because you obviously you you want to run fast times every time but equally mm -hmm. you want to save your body as much as possible so yeah I, I mean i don't know how you really approach that and obviously it, it makes a difference the better you are so someone like usain bolt um where yeah he, he had that pace and abundance he could afford to like mm -hmm. only run half the race and then back off a lot towards yeah. the end and save himself but if you're if you're just fighting to get to the next round each time you have to yeah. run a full pace it's a really hard thing to try and manage yeah it is definitely because if you're like you said if you're not one of the top guys you have to run flat out in every round in order to make the this the final um mm. so the the top dogs are really a, a benefit because they can afford to to run you know 150 meters and shut down the last 50 meters and um, so they're a bit that it does it does make a difference it just makes them a bit fresher going into it um so yeah it's, it is a it is a tough one to balance but I think it's about you know whatever heat semi-final you have to you have to run it as if it's a final until a certain point so like for the 200 you want to be well clear off the bend and maybe with I don't know 30 meters to go if you're clearly in the lead then you, you might be able to shut down a bit or just coast a bit but you have to be kind of out of the the woods and mm. and and run it hard until you're safe really so when, when you're actually running do you have a good understanding about where you are in the race or do you run sort of some somewhat blind like imagine so I've got no experience of running at more than a very slow to brisk pace but um what that sort of speed you're running at i can imagine it's a little bit tunnel vision at times um but do you do you have a good idea are you thinking you know i'm, I'm i think i'm in third i think i'm in fourth or are you very much just like there's a finish line I'm trying to get to it as quick as i can 
Yeah, the best races are the ones you finish and you think, I don't have a clue what's just happened there. I don't know what's gone on. I don't know where I finished because you've completely just switched off and ran your race um, naturally and what's natural for you. Um, and you focused on your own lane. And I know from my experiences, when I've run, run well, it's when I've just completely focused on myself and not really been aware of what's going on. Um, you, will, you will be, like, there will be some awareness but yeah, I just try and completely focus on myself because everyone runs the race differently. There'll be girls that are really quick over the first hundred, but not as quick at the second hundred and people at the, are at the opposite. So if I, I'm definitely slower over the first hundred, if I'm then panicking, being behind the girls, then, you know, you tighten up and, and you don't run well. So it's just about running your own race. What's, what's natural for you. Yeah. Um, Okay, so let's get into race day itself. And um, I've been down to the London Olympic Stadium a few times and I've mm-hmm. seen where they've got the warm-up area, which is obviously still mm-hmm. there. Um, and obviously, ironically, it's actually the only running track in the area because the other ones kind of got yeah. to push us up a bit. But um, what's, what's it like pre-race for the warm-up? What do you do? How do you get... How do you get that correct balance of being warm and prepared to run a fast time without being exhausted? Um, It's about knowing what works for you. So um, in my training group, there's some people will train and their first run will be their best run. And that's where they feel the freshest and they get tired after that. I'm a, a different athlete to that. My last run will be my best run. It takes me a while to get going. So because of that, then you adapt your warm up to that. So my warm up can be quite long and I don't necessarily tire from it. If anything, I, I need it to get my legs turning over. Um, but it's weird. There's a lot of nerves, obviously, around race day. Um, a, a lot of, you know, stress, anxiety. But a lot of the time, once you start warming up, that kind of can disappear. Um, I know that's what's happened to me in the past. I've been so nervous for weeks sometimes leading up to big competitions. And on the day... I remember in British Champs in 2018, on the day, oh God, I, I didn't even want to race. I was terrified. I was so scared. But then I start warming up. You see your coach and your training partners that are there competing as well. And that just relaxes you. And I remember being oddly calm at the British Champs in 2018, just feeling like, yeah, just I wasn't worried. I knew I had what I had to do. And, and I kind of visualize it in my head and go over my race plan and, and kind of have a set routine. Um, every time but it's yeah you can be oddly calm um when when it comes to actually being on the start the start line fantastic and and where was was the game with this oh yeah what um what sort of mind games you get behind the scenes do you have any any of those big name athletes who like to sort of mess around any elaborate stretches or you know loud music or gave you the gave the evils any sort of kicking a water bottle over what's it like what's it like behind the scenes um, i'm lucky i've not really experienced much like that um i mean you get the odd uh, thing are they trying to make me feel uncomfortable but it's nothing it's nothing you know that you could you could pinpoint and say they definitely did that um i think it's yeah everyone's i think we've grown as a sport we're not kind of athletics 
they don't really trash talk each other um like boxing or other sports like that is it's very different um and a lot of events actually they get on really well and sprinting's a bit different there is a bit of tension in the sprints but things like the pole vault um they they're actually all mates and when one of them jumps well they all run over to each other and hug each other and so it is it is very different because they spend a lot of time out there competing together and so they build a bond whereas we don't really warm up together as sprinters um it's it's not it's weird because like especially with some of the brits you you create a friendly relationship and and you're friends with them but when you're warming up you're you're not thinking that you know that's my mate you're you just see each other as rivals when you're warming up and getting ready to go and then after the race you you could be friendly and and whatnot but before the race it's very much you know you just you just want to win and do you allow yourself to get distracted at all by what's going on in the stadium while you're warming up like if there's other if other heats going on or other events or other athletes competing does that ever put you off um a lot of the time when you we're warming up away from the events and the stadium so the warm-up area is com- something completely separate so a lot of the time you don't even know what's going on but when you walk out um, there'll be obviously stuff going on because there's stuff going on left right and center in athletics and I quite enjoy that because I think it's quite motivating like in um, London this year when I ran my personal best my roommate that I share with when we go away she just run a personal best and that was going on over the tannoy as I was walking out to my race so it's that kind of inspires you almost and and so I quite I quite like seeing that I don't I don't find it a distraction I I find it quite inspiring and then finally looking at this sort of race day you're you're on the start line you're in the blocks and there's always that quite uncomfortable pause between you know um when you're getting down you're you're looking at the floor you've got your hands you've got your feet in the blocks and then just before they go sets and then obviously the gun goes there's that quite long what I imagine for me would be a really uncomfortable pause what goes through your mind in those sort of two or three seconds I actually really like a long cold which is is so weird not many people do but as a 200 meter sprinter you get you get held for a long time because the starter's got to look from like lane one through to lane eight which is uh, it's not in a straight line like it would be the hundreds so you're you're in quite a long hold but so I quite like that I'm used to that but all I'm thinking of as soon as you hear anything which it will be the gun you just react that all I'm thinking of is just react react and a lot of athletes like don't do that they like to clear the mind whereas I like my mind to be like quite awake and quite focused and thinking right the next noise you hear and obviously not it's not ideal if it's a crowd noise but that never that never normally happens you're so tuned to hear that gun and you're just listening out for it and you just need to go as soon as you hear that because in in sprints there's not much margin for error like if you react a tenth of a second slower um then your team teammates who you're racing that's that's the difference between can be the difference between first and last so it's really really important you react um well yeah obviously and uh i i said i've never been in that position i remember going back to school and i remember sort of doing sprints and we never had that scenario but I'm the sort of person I think I'd really hate that long pause. I think once mm. I'm in that, I think I'll be thinking, overthinking things, thinking yeah. about the race too much. Whereas 
same for anything I quite like whether it's hockey or rugby just to be in the moment I hate having time Mm -hmm. to think about it whether that be Mm -hmm. because it's like a yellow card or a red card or Mm. there's a penalty anything that pauses the game is never really a good thing Mm -hmm. uh, for me Uh, so we're going to move on to a few bits to sort of round up in a moment that's Mm -hmm. what we do one thing that sprung to mind actually is the IA the IAAF yeah Mm -hmm. the IAAF the IAAF have um, put a lot of effort in recent years, I think, to try and really grab hold of the Usain Bolt effect that mm-hmm. athletics has had. So making it more mainstream, making it more exciting, more mm-hmm. accessible for the fans. And one thing they've really tried with the sprints is to have some somewhat forced personality. So what mm. they've been doing is, I think I've seen you know, you've probably seen, you might have seen over in Doha in particular, they have like the walkout music, mm. they have like um, the big like GB flag and then you have to walk mm-hmm. out, as, especially as a relay team and you've got to stand mm-hmm. there and everyone mm-hmm. does like the Charlie's Angels pose, which is like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a box. St- if you're a female runner, Charlie's Angels pose mm. and then move on. Um, mm. I think if you're a male runner, it's like show the guns and then move on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's something they tried really hard to try and sort of ramp mm-hmm. up the atmosphere. Do you, do you mm-hmm. think that's that's a good thing? And do you think that's going to help grow the sport? Or for you, is it just a bit of another sort of fad? What, what's your views on that sort of stuff? I really don't mind it. Like, I think that's fine. Like, if they want to do that, that really doesn't bother me. But I, I don't think it's necessarily the best way to grow the sport. I think the coverage of athletics can be pretty poor at times. And obviously that's that's all I'm experiencing in this country. But what what we see a lot um, is that it's, it's not shown how it should be shown. So the best athletics events that I, I've watched are when the, the Brits don't have the filming rights. Um, I think it was the European team champs in 2019. It was in Poland. And so we, we didn't have filming rights. So we were showing whatever the Polish um, TV filming right people were were showing and we saw everything we saw all the field events it was it was swapping from high jump to long jump to this and you just saw and it was you were just following it and it was just amazing and then sometimes when it goes on the BBC they don't show it they, they've got so much studio chat going on and and a lot of analysis and and things like that which is fine kind of before the event or after the event but actually, the best way to improve athletics is to show it. And, and what, what they tend to do sometimes on the BBC is just show the best three jumps or the best three throws. And who cares? It looks the same every time. It's about building a story. Um, well, I say it looks the same every time, not to people who know what it's like, but to the general fan, a throw is a throw. It's about building that story. Like this year, um, at Brit- the British champs that went ahead, uh, Harry Coppel, a pole vaulter, he jumped a British record on his last attempt. Now, if that was shown um, on the BBC in the normal fashion, they would have just shown the attempt and everyone would be like, oh, well done, he got over it. Whereas when it was shown outside the studio, it was still on the BBC, but it was only commentators involved. They, it, they, sh- they were explaining it's a British record and you sh- it showed him failing it twice. So then when you go for the third attempt, you're, all, you're really excited to see it and and when he did it, I was like screaming my head off. Whereas if that's just shown as one random jump with no context, you don't, you, it's hard to follow. Um, and we've been saying this for years, but it's not changed. But yeah, it, it needs to be improved because the studio chat isn't helping at all. 
No, I um, I, I certainly agree. And I think I remember the competition you were speaking about, the uh, the Euros in Poland. And I and I think I remember, yeah, I've, I think I really enjoyed that again because it's, yeah. I think indoor athletics on it, in its own right is actually quite a good way to grow a sport as well because it's smaller tracks, bigger atmosphere, mm. more intimate venues, which is obviously great. Another good example, which I which I've come across. I'm not sure if you're familiar at all with swimming, but a sport which has probably the similar issues that athletics has mm-hmm. in terms of every four years, it's massive. You can't get a ticket yeah. to see it and it's sold out stadiums and it's amazing. And, you know, you're on the covers of magazines and mm-hmm. cereal boxes, but then no one really cares for the next four years until yeah. it comes around again. So there's a lot of parallels between swimming and athletics, but what swimming have done over the last couple of years and it's been driven a lot by people like Adam Peaty mm. and they bought this what they call the International Swimming League out mm-hmm. which um, if you don't know anyone at home doesn't know is basically a way of having a swimming competition throughout the year but with mm. teams so like professional teams so so they've got um, I think they're called the London Roar um, inspired I think by Adam Peaty's lion tattoo and there's Oh god, I can't remember the rest of the names now. There's there's loads of different names. There's a team base, I think, in LA. There's one based in Budapest, I think. Um, mm. uh, so of course you have across the world. And what that means is when you're watching an event, it's not individuals, it's a team. Mm. Which actually I think almost draws you in more because you become a London fan. You're a fan of London mm-hmm. Raw, you're a fan of this team, you found that team. So then mm-hmm. you watch every race and you want to see that team. So I think if if the team wins, they get like eight points for that race if they come last mm. and get one point and so on so every race matters and mm-hmm. i don't know whether that's something athletics could potentially pursue long term and it would mean like say for like the diamond league events or the equivalents obviously your, your, your championships obviously represent gb in the same as you're doing mm-hmm. but for those lower key events it means you get a fan base so you would compete mm. for, let's just say it's the the london well would be unimaginative let's hate the same name you're, you're competing mm-hmm. for london raw and mm-hmm. every event you do in the diamond league you're getting points for that team so mm. you, can, you can be a kid at home and you can support london raw so every event you're supporting whichever team is wearing yeah the green outfit or whatever london are wearing mm-hmm. and that'd really kind of draw youngsters into the sport and perhaps mm-hmm. be more rather than following an athlete that's a weird thing about athletics you follow an individual yeah well, or you follow the individual or you follow your country yeah um, and maybe if you could follow just a sport in general and you got an interest in every race because every race has got someone from your team involved yeah maybe that's a good way to perhaps grow sport a very different way and quite an innovative yeah. way by the swimmers maybe that's a way to perhaps look at sports like yourself like swimming like rowing all those sports that fall into that category of being basically irrelevant for the four years between mm-hmm. olympics Mm-hmm. yeah they definitely need to do something and um, I definitely agree like a club because we have clubs that we're part of anyway so that would that would be something that's possible um with athletics um yeah I definitely agree with that yeah okay um so I hate when this happens I hate when we get a really great subject right at the very end so <laughs> it always frustrates me but a couple of things sort of uh, to finish so firstly give me um Let's say give me two highlights from your career, like the top two moments from your career so far. Um, so the first one would be, I think, when I... Well, my, my number one would be British champs in 2018 when I won. Um, but I don't know if I will ever will top that, um, unless, obviously, I went on to 
international medal success um just because yeah it was just it was just such an amazing moment that was unexpected and uh, yeah I never thought I could achieve that um and I think also um running sub 23 for the first time um was was really special as well I'd say that was my second um most because that's kind of like a milestone um in athletics that female sprinters want to achieve um and it's it, it's a different level when you can when you can do that you feel like you're at a diff- different level so yeah I'd say those two have been my highlights fantastic yeah and those are your highlights so far but like you said hopefully there's great things to come um yeah. both in this year and then looking forward to sort of Paris 2024 and perhaps mm-hmm. even beyond that mm-hmm. um so what would you say what are your real long-term ambitions in this sport um, I'd definitely love to be part of uh, the relay success um, and definitely love to get some uh, world or Olympic medals as part of that. Um, and for me, it's just, I, I know I always say it, it sounds so cliche, but it's just, I want to be able to retire feeling like I gave that absolutely everything and I couldn't have given it more. And because of that, I've achieved, I mean, I feel like I've already exceeded my own expectations. So I just want to be able to retire in however many years and look back and think, wow, I absolutely gave everything and I and I did X, Y and Z and whatever that is, I will be happy with because um, I'm a big believer if you put in the work, you do reap the rewards. So yeah, just continue going the way I am um, and yeah, to keep doing myself uh, justice and um, and running quick times. Great, yeah, and you're right, if you do that and you can't really disappointed really no matter what you achieve mm-hmm. you've already achieved so much mm-hmm. so far and I'm, so, I'm sure just from this conversation and the research mm-hmm. I've done you're going to have a great couple of years ahead of you and there's been a lot of success there so to finish I do always give my guests a chance to talk about anything they want in this segment we call any other business is there anything uh from the world of sport or the world on the whole that springs to mind for you um I don't actually know uh what sort what sort of things do you mean like <laughs> um yeah, this is always quite an awkward ending actually because yeah often, I don't, I'm going to say well, yeah. so we, we actually kind of touched upon it already actually um a great one was growing the sport and um kind of and how we do that is is it's tricky and I, I i love athletics i always have quite loved athletics um one thing which i quite like and i'm not sure if you ever competed in is do you know the um, inner city games they've done a few times up in Manchester? Yes, I love those. They're uh, amazing. The 200 meters in a straight line. Yeah, they're amazing. Um, and, and yes, yeah, so I think, I mean, that's a great scope. Maybe yeah. we have more of those and just take it to all places in the world. Um, it's much more accessible, people close to the action. Um, but I, I've been a fan of athletics since I was a young kid. And I, don't, I think maybe the, the issue isn't really getting people interested in athletics. Maybe it's retaining people. Because I think most kids yeah. are quite interested. I think athletics is quite, yeah. a, it's quite a fun thing to watch, whether that be, I think sprinting has always been like a headline mm-hmm. grabber. Um, mm-hmm. Long before the days of Usain Bolt, sprinters have always been perhaps the biggest names in, in the sport. But we've had plenty of success in the past in GB, uh, mm-hmm. 2012 in particular. But long before that, you go back and you go to like Steve Cram and, and throughout the generations we've had lots of success and it's kind of how do you build on that success because it seems like we haven't really evolved much 
and mm. in the last so many years. And yeah, is it is it getting more prime time TV? perhaps um retaining more and more of those events on terrestrial television but to be fair athletics isn't really a sport that struggles with terrestrial television most of the events are on the bbc um mm. some are on eurosport but a lot are on the bbc and you compare that mm-hmm. to other sports that is that is very accessible um but i don't know i mean so you already touched on some good ideas but have you got any other ideas that they could use to evolve the sport yeah, I think it is um, a case of they're trying to, I think they're trying too hard to think, oh, we know we need to get people interested and we need this and we need that. And actually, if they just did the basics good, I think that would be, because like you said, every every kids can relate to athletics. There's If you go to a school play, playground, um, there's an event for everyone Um in athletics there you can turn on the tv and every child on that playground can see someone that looks like them even even disabled children like athletics is huge for paris sport they they really can anyone i believe anyone can do athletics because it's running jumping throwing and you see all body types and all strengths and weaknesses really tall people really short people It, it is there's something for everyone and i think there's too much of um trying to make it innovative i can never say that word innovative innovative do you know what word innovative (laughs) i can never say it um yeah there's too much trying to make it new and and you know like trying to make it modern but actually if they just did the basics really good um and allowed people to follow it i think that is all they need to do and i think a a clip of mondo duplantis went viral um a couple of months ago and it was literally just a slow-mo of him doing pole vault because it was insane how he left the pole and then traveled in the air and then went over the bar and showing that in slow-mo was just insane shove that on the tv like after he's jumped you know put put pictures on to show how um how high these athletes are actually jumping i mean there was a really great thing a couple of years ago when uh, mike bushell from the bbc he raced um the under 23 men and he was like five or six seconds behind him and it just showed your average man is so much slower than these uh, not they weren't even elite athletes actually it was a gb under 23 race it you know it just just things like that to showcase it but the studio chat for me it can go right at the start or right at the end but it can't cut away from the coverage because it's the coverage what is what is good to watch no one wants to hear um opinions we know when action's going on when you're um when you're sat there with your medal later in the summer and they're cutting away from the action to speak to you i hope you say <laughs> no cut back yeah. oh, get, no, get away from me how dare you <laughs> yeah i know yeah i really i really hope so because yeah i, I I mean, it's it's hard because as, as athletes, you want um, opportunities to showcase what you've done. And if you've won a medal and you get invited to the studio, that is nice because you're being celebrated. But then at the same time, you don't want it cutting away from the action. <laughs> I, mean, I think it'd be great if the camera cuts to you and you're just like looking over your shoulder. Like, looking yeah, the, the shot what's going on, actually. That'd be good. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah I, uh, that actually reminds me as well of one of my all-time methods for improving all sports which is to have one amateur person in every race. I think, yeah. I think it's fantastic. I think there should be nine lanes at the Olympics. There already yeah. is nine lanes, one's empty. Yeah. And just put like me in it. 
or just a, just yeah. a normal bloke. And it's amazing how far behind like you think these guys are running fast but if you see Usain Bolt running and then some normal person running next to him it's a, it's amazing how far behind he is you're talking yeah. like he's not even well, he's never run in the camera he's not even he's yeah. in the same stadium as the runners by the time they finish mm-hmm. and I think it'd be great I want to see a swimmer and I want to see just some normal local swimming pool swimmer dive in and mm. the guys have finished like five lengths before he's even got to the halfway line mm. and rowing just get like a normal like a couple of lads of a few tinnies yeah. in a boat next to them, so how far <laughs> yeah. behind they are. And, and yeah, like team sports, just every team has to have one, mm. every football team has one overweight guy who they pluck yeah. from a five-a-side league and just see like how impossible it is to like control the ball at that sort of speed mm-hmm. and wherever it is. I think that'd be fantastic. All sports have one, they do on a lottery, a lottery, everyone's like, like jury duty. You get called up to be involved in the Olympics as a... Yeah. As a random <laughs> bloke on the outside, I'd be very keen for that as a as a policy, and I'll add it to my list of things I'm going to submit to yeah. the international committee and see what they say. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think that rounds us up quite nicely, actually. So uh, I want to say thanks very much for joining me, and I think we've all gained some good insights, and you have a great story. Uh, before we go, though, just remind everyone where they can find out more about you and your socials. Um, yeah, so it's very simple. It's literally just my name on both Twitter and Instagram, Beth Dobbin. Um, so yeah, no funky numbers or, you know, underscores, anything like that. Just my name. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the underscores. I've got underscores everywhere <laughs> yeah. in mine, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so yeah, so just thanks a lot for joining me and uh, all the best of luck for the summer. Thank you very much for having me. Ah, that was class. Beth was fantastic. The 200 metres is one of my favourite Olympic events, so I will certainly be watching out for her in this summer's edition. A lot of people opt for the 100 metres as their preferred sprint race, but I'm afraid those people are wrong. There's been some truly iconic 200 metre races in the past, Bolt in 2009, Johnson in 1996, and Alison Felix in 2012. The reason why it is the best event out of the sprint classes is because the first 100 meters you have no idea what is going on and then suddenly the bend unwinds that stagger breaks down and it's just a mad dash for the finish the noise of the crowd swells as people realize whereabouts everyone is in the race and it's twice as long twice as much can surely only be a good thing Remember to go and check out the social media, which is at hips underscore and underscore dips of a Z on Instagram and also Beth Dobbin, which is B-E-T-H-D-O-B-B-I-N on Instagram to track her progress ahead of this summer's Tokyo Olympics. I hope those of you in the UK have enjoyed your Easter Bank holiday weekends. I personally am playing my first round of golf this week in 2021. So I purchased around about 20 extra balls, which should be enough to get me round that first round in one piece. I'm very excited, but make sure you get out and make the most of our increased sporting allowances over the coming weeks. If you follow the page, make sure you come back next week as well for episode 23 with Kirsty Way from Team GB Trampolining, a really interesting guest and a very entertaining storyteller. Finally for this week, I would like to dedicate episode 21 to my late uncle George Aldersley who recently passed away. He will be missed by the whole family, and I don't think life will ever be the same for us again. 
an avid sportsman in his younger years. He never made it onto the podcast as a guest, uh, but I'm sure he could have entertained us with anecdotes on golf, football, and perhaps his biggest passion in fishing. Now, everyone, please stay grateful, stay happy, and as always, most importantly, stay safe.